0: We are looking at the story of Adam's family tree. And we're going to begin at the end of chapter four, moving in to chapter five. Let's begin in chapter four, 25 and 26. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him to Seth, To him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the beginning of corporate worship. That's exactly what this is talking about. And we have a brand new lineage now coming through Seth, a lineage that will honor the Lord. You saw last week the destruction in the lineage of Cain. And we have contrasted this week in your workbook two lineages coming from Adam Seven generations through Cain, seven generations through Seth. We see what happens in generations that choose to try to make life apart from God's truth and his word. And we see we end up with a Lamech. We have Cain having a son named Enoch. And God had told him you're going to be a wanderer and a vagrant all of your days. And what does he do? He goes out and builds a city because he left the presence of God and he chose to build a life apart from God. Enoch had Irad, who had Mahuziel, who had Methushiel, who had Lamech. And we saw last week Lamech is the first recorded polygamist and also a murderer. So we see here a picture of the sins of the fathers being passed down from generation to generation and compounding as they go. We see also that Lamech's descendants, Jabal, became the father of those who have tents and livestock. Jubal, the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. Tubal Cain, the forger of implements of bronze and iron. So Lamech's descendants created a culture apart from God. John Phillips says they founded an age of discovery and were the innovators of prosperity, pleasure, and power, all the while seeking to live apart from God's will and God's design. Lamech's song of defiance and pride, when he says, Listen to me wives of Lamech. He ends up saying that if someone harms him, he's going to injure them and he will come against them with 70 times seven. That's how the Septuagint renders what Lamech says in his boast. And that is obviously in sharp contrast with the Lord's teaching on forgiveness. What did the Lord say in Matthew 18 when Peter approached him? And Peter said to him, Lord, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, thinking he was being extremely generous in forgiving seven times. And what does the Lord say to him? I don't say to you up to seven times, but to 70 times seven. Now, the Jewish mind, they would have known immediately that was a contrast to Lamech's boast that Jesus is saying, No, don't avenge yourself 70 times seven, but instead choose forgiveness 70 times seven. So let's move now into the descendants of Seth as we move into Genesis chapter 5. This is a book of the generations of Adam. Now you've got at the very top of your handout there um, a point made that it opens with this is the book of the generations of Adam. Nowhere else is there a genealogy that calls it a book. It calls it a record, or this is a genealogy of, these are the descendants of. There are a lot of genealogies, especially in the Old Testament. And we won't see the book of again until we get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And it's the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. We know there is a book in heaven, and it is the Lamb's book of life. And there are names recorded in this book and we will notice in the descendants of Cain it doesn't say that they lived it doesn't say that they died it just tells us who their son was who their direct descendant was but when we get into chapter 5 we see not only did they live but they died because their deaths are recorded in heaven these are the names of those who would be part of the lineage of the promised one the genesis 3:15 promise So let's begin once again in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, He made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and He blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, Now, Adam was in the likeness of God, but after sin entered the picture, he is a marred image of God, and we now inherit a sin nature through Adam. So his descendants are in his image, which means we all have the sin nature of our father. Then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. Kenan lived 70 years and became the father of Mahaliel. Then Canaan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahaliel and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Kenan were 910 years and he died. Mahaliel lived 65 years and became the father of Jared. Then Mahaliel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years and he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Now we're going to pause right there. And we see that God did take note of the death of the Sethites. And John Philip said, The death of each saint was Jubilee Day in heaven, for precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Death for them was not the end, but the beginning. The finality of death caused by sin and so powerfully demonstrated in the genealogy of Genesis is, in fact, not so final. Man was not born to die. He was born to live. And that life comes by walking with God, which we're going to see when we go a little bit deeper into the life of Enoch. Walking with God is the key to the chains of the curse. Now let that sink in. Walking with God is the key to the chains Of the curse, now let's pick back up. Verse twenty. So all the days of Jared were nine hundred and sixty-two years, and he died. Enoch lived sixty-five years and became the father of Methuselah. What do we know about him? The oldest guy, yes, to live. Then Enoch walked with God three hundred years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were three hundred and sixty-five years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Enoch walked so intimately with the Lord that he was not because God took him. Now, I want you to turn in your New Testament to Hebrews chapter 11. We have a couple of other places that Enoch is recorded in Scripture. Here in Hebrews and also in Jude. I want us to actually read verses 1 through 6. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if we're going to have faith, that means we believe. We take the Word of God exactly as it is and we make a choice to believe. And that there are things in God's Word that we are yet to see, but we know that we will. That's exactly what faith is. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Now listen to this. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. So what do we know about Enoch? He walked by faith. He believed God. He obeyed God's word because he trusted that it was true. And because he had faith in God and walked with God, God took him. He was not. He was raptured. That's literally what that is. He was taken into the presence of God without experiencing physical death. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now listen to Jude verses 14 and 15. Jude is talking about those who have come into the church and they're really tares among the wheat. And they're sowing discord. And he says in verse 14, It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch not only walked with God, he was a prophet of God and he was warning the people of a judgment to come. Now this same judgment and these angelic Beings that come with Christ are also prophesied about in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 27, For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. What do we know? For every one of us is appointed once to die. And after that comes judgment. Judgment. We know that there will be judgment. The Bible's very clear about that. Daniel 7:10 also talks about these angelic beings, these myriads of angels and servants of the Lord. It says a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. There will be a day of judgment. And we are going to be judged based on what we did with Jesus Christ. But we also know we're going to be judged by every idle word that we have spoken and by the deeds that we have done. They will be tried by fire to determine if they're eternal or temporal. Were we just invested in this world or were we laying up treasure in heaven that will come forth through that judgment of fire as gold, silver, and precious stones? In a sentence then... Arthur Pink said, Walking with God means that we cease taking our own way, that we abandon the world's way, that we follow the divine way. It's exactly what Jesus taught. And he was looking at the huge crowd and he said to all of them, If any of you want to come after me, you've got to do what? Deny yourself daily, take up your cross, and follow me. So every day we have to die to our own desires. We die to the desires of the world, to the schemes of the enemy, and we come alive to the truth of God's Word and to the divine way. We choose to live according to God's revealed truth through His Word. And we want our children to walk with the Lord. And if we want our children and our grandchildren to know the Lord and walk with Him, we need to be their examples. We need to be diligently, passionately pursuing Christ. We need to value His Word. We need to let them see we make decisions based on the Word of God that we prayerfully go to the Lord when we're making decisions. We pray over them, with them, for them. And there are some tremendous resources on our Bellevue website for parents. And it's bellevue.org forward slash nextgen forward slash parents. You see it on the screen. Jot that down. There are so many resources. I spent quite a bit of time yesterday just looking at them. I love everything they have compiled there. If you have any question about almost anything, there's a resource there for you. We want to equip you. That's why we're doing Fight for the Family. We want to give you tools to help teach the foundational truths to your children so that they're building their lives upon the rock-solid foundation of life with Christ and His Word. So these resources are there to help you. Now we know then that God pronounced judgment in Genesis chapter 6. Let's go back to Genesis. Let's pick back up with verse 25. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. Then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we see Noah is going to be the one through whom God brings salvation and safety through Noah, one of the descendants of Seth. Now look at verse chapter 6, verse 1. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Now there's some differing thoughts on whether that means he's limiting the Age span to 120, or because of Noah, you've got 120 years before judgment is coming. Because we know that Noah preached, he was a preacher of righteousness for a hundred years as he was building the ark. God gave them that long to repent, to hear the voice of the God of God from his prophet. Um, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now you looked at that in your workbook this week. There are several ideas. Um, various theologians and commentaries will give you on to who the sons of God were. We did see that sons of God is generally only used for angelic beings. So did these demonic spirits come in and possess men and through them have these Nephilim? We don't know. Was it the ungodly Canaanites, Canaanites marrying the godly lineage of Seth and corrupting them? We don't know. We don't know. (laughs) We're just going to leave it there. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Moses is using what they call anthropomorphic terms. When he's talking about God here, because he's showing us God has feelings, that it grieved his heart, that he was sorry that he had made man because of how evil man had become. Listen to five through eight from the message. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. God was sorry that he had made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. God said, I'll get rid of my ruined creation. Make a clean sweep. People, animals, snakes, bugs, birds, the works. I'm sorry I made them. But Noah was different. God liked what he saw in Noah. Oh, that we too could walk in such a way that we would be different. That God would see in us a faith and trust in him that would please him because we have chosen to walk by faith. We looked at this week the sins of the fathers. And I know that's a topic that's not always talked about or discussed, but it is all throughout Scripture. And we see it first in Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, when God gave them the Ten Commandments. He said, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, just think with me. Because if we look at Adam and go down through Cain's lineage, we see the sins of the fathers, do we not? We see it compounding as it goes down. And we end up with Lamech, who's the first polygamist and a murderer. And he's proud of it. He's arrogant and boastful about what he's done. And arrogantly boasting to his wives, which makes me wonder, was he boasting to them to keep them in line? Is he the first oppressor and abuser of women? But we see what sin does. But then we look through seven generations Down through Seth and we come to Enoch who walked with God and was not because God took him. He so pleased God that God just took him home. So we see how that blessing of the thousands can come down through a lineage that chooses to follow the Lord. Quite a few years ago, I was asked to speak at a women's prison. And I was really praying about what to share. And I, it's one of those times where I'd, I'd prayed and I'd sought the Lord and I just kind of settled on a message for them. But it was just unsettling because I didn't feel like this is it. You know, I love it when the Lord gives me something, I know this is it. Um, and I, boy, I just didn't have it. And so just before I was being picked up to be taken to the prison, I was in a hotel room and I knelt down beside the bed. And I just was praying and saying, Lord, I, I still feel unsettled. I just, I don't feel good about what I'm sharing with these women. And I know this is an opportunity from you. And I want to have a word from you for them. And it was like immediately the Lord said choices. And I went from Genesis to Revelation with choices. And saw that from the very beginning, God has given us part of what it means to be created in his image is the ability to choose to obey, to choose to love him. And when we choose to obey, he blesses, and we see it all throughout Scripture. We get into Deuteronomy when Moses is going back over the laws that God has given the people, and what does he say to them? Stand be- I stand before you today. I call heaven and earth to witness that I have set before you life and death, blessing and a curse. Choose life that you may live. You and your what? Descendants. So I was able to take them through Scripture and show them how we have a choice. Jesus Himself, teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, says, you can't serve two masters, God and mammon or money. There are two paths, the broad and the narrow. There are two foundations, the rock and the sand. And Jesus was telling them, you must choose. So we see it all throughout Scripture that we must choose to obey the Lord. We must choose to act by faith and our descendants will be impacted By our choices. That is evident. And about the year 2000, I was working through some Sylvia Gunter materials, and it's actually her really thick two volume set, Living in His Presence. But in that set, she has a section called What's Growing on Your Family Tree. And Steve and I looked at that, and I had made copies for both of us, and it takes you back through your parents and your grandparents on both sides, and it lists a lot of various sins that you go back through and just reflect over and say, Do I see that as a pattern in my family? And I was praying through some issues, and Steve was as well, and we got together, and all it, all of her scripture, all of her prayers and things she has you do are all just scripture. She takes you through scripture and lays the foundation for you, and then all of her prayers are scriptural. But we got together and we decided to declare war on sin patterns in our family lineage. And we brought the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus against those sin patterns and refused them entrance into our children's lives or our grandchildren's lives. Because when you're born, when you're conceived, you have a DNA biological stamp. All right, and you are going to be physically, according to that biological imprint, you're going to, you're gonna, that's your DNA. It's out, of, it's who you're going to be. But the moment you're saved, you received a spiritual DNA. And it's the DNA of Jesus Christ. And because we've been given authority over the enemy and we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And we have received every spiritual blessing that rightfully belongs to us as co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We need to be living like it. We don't need to be living like paupers. No longer We're no longer tied to sin. We no longer have to live in patterns of sin that have been passed down through our family lineage. We can say it stops with me. No more. And we declared war on those sin patterns. And I tell you what, it was incredibly freeing for both of us to be able to work through that, to pray through that together. So I encourage you, if you've never done that, ask the Lord to show you. If there are dominant sin patterns in your family of origin, and think back through your parents, your grandparents, maybe aunts and uncles, things that you have seen, whether it's alcoholism, divorce, immorality, whatever it may be, fear, anxiety, worry, ask the Lord to show you. Take it to the Lord. Bring the blood of Jesus and the name of Jesus against that curse that's being passed down through your family line and sever its hold. In the name of Jesus, claim what rightfully belongs to you as a child of God. You're living now out of your spiritual identity as a child of Jesus Christ. You know, I was reading this morning in my one-year chronological Bible, and it took me into a passage of Scripture that deals with two of my favorite women, Mary and Martha. And it was in John chapter 11 where Lazarus has died and Jesus delays coming until Lazarus is dead because he knows what he's going to do, right? So when they hear that Jesus is coming, Martha runs out and she meets him on the road and she says, Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus reveals to her his deity. What does he say to her? I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And she says, Lord, I know that. I believe that you're the Messiah. Then she comes back and says, Mary, the Lord is here and he's asking for you. And the moment she knew he would ask for her, she got up immediately, went to meet him. And she said the same thing. Lord, if only you'd been here, my brother would not have died, but she's at his feet. What is she saying by her posture? Nevertheless, I trust you. And the scripture says, Jesus wept. So to Mary, he revealed his humanity. And we have to have both. We have to have the deity of Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins, his sinlessness. But we need his humanity as well to be our example. But the thing that jumped out at me was in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him and he was deeply troubled. Now this is a New Living Translation. Quite often it will just say deeply moved, you know, grieved. It's really not strong enough. And I don't know exactly why the translators kind of toned it down. But what it actually means, according to Strong's concordance, is he's snorting in anger. It makes me think of a bull. He's angry. What is he angry about? Not at Mary and Martha, not at those that are weeping. He's angry at sin and death. He's angry at what sin has done to the beauty of what has been created in the very image of God. That anger moved him. In fact, it says it again. It says, verse 36, Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb and the cave, the, a cave with a stone rolled across the entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. And of course, once again, it's, he's deeply moved. It's the same exact word. He's snorting with anger and he says, remove the stone. And then what does he do? He calls Lazarus by name and the dead man came walking out. What I want you to know, this is a beautiful picture of exactly what's going to happen when Jesus returns. We read that there is a judgment day coming. Jesus himself said he's coming back. We won't stand before the great white throne of judgment, only those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. Those who are part of the lineage of Cain, those who have tried to make life work apart from God, only those people will stand before the great white throne of judgment. I'm reading a book right now that I've just gotten into. It's by John Mark Comer and the title of it is Live No Lies. And in his book, he's talking about the sexual revolution of the 60s and how women wanted to get rid of the oppression of being homemakers and wives at home. They wanted to get into the workforce. They wanted freedom. They wanted sexual freedom. He says, happiness levels have been in decline in the U.S. since, interestingly, the 60s. (laughs) While we know that correlation is not causation, you have to admit it's an interesting coincidence. He says, consider that divorce while cited as an example of liberation from the patriarchy, has been shown to disproportionately benefit men. Or that those who cohabit before marriage are less likely to marry, are more likely to get a divorce if they do, and often develop long-term trust issues. Every single one of these statements are cited with a reference. Or the research on oxytocin and vasopressin, the two chemicals released by our body during sex that bring our attachment system online and cause us to bond to another person. It seems that the more sexual partners you have, the less capacity your body has for intimacy or the much documented but little talked about data on the effects of abortion on women's mental and physical health, causing some to hypothesize the left will eventually change its now hardline view. Or that sex reassignment surgery and hormone therapy for those who identify as transgender do not benefit their emotional health, which is the main rationale behind them. And this is a 2020 study, and it's one of the largest data sets they've ever done. Or the stats on the epidemic of sexual addiction across the West. Or the fact that porn is becoming increasingly violent, misogynistic, and cruel, and is now a multi-billion dollar industry intentionally targeting children. Never mind that while Me Too was dominating headlines, the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, a story about male sexual domination, was becoming the highest-selling book series of the decade and one of the highest-grossing film franchises of all times. Never mind that sexual abuse and sexual assault are getting worse, not better. Statistically, one out of every four women will experience sexual violence at some point in their lives. Never mind that rape culture is a raging problem, even on the most liberal, progressive campuses of elite universities. These facts are conveniently left out of the discussion, if there even is a discussion. The liberation is starting to look more and more like enslavement. Do we see what's happening to our culture? Our culture is caught up in lies. What did the enemy do to convince Eve? He lied to her. You won't die. And yet what do we see is happening to every single one of them? They live and they die. They live and they die. Death reigns. We must choose to live differently. As I was praying this morning, I was praying that we would take the light of the gospel into the darkness of our culture, that we would be torch bearers, that we would take the truth of the word of God that we're studying and that we would speak this truth to a hurting and broken broken society. We must speak it. We must share the truth. We must love people to Jesus. And as we reach out to them individually, we're going to be able to make a difference. We are way beyond a political fix. Politicians cannot legislate morality. It is immorality across the board that is taking our culture down into such deep darkness and depravity. And it's the goal of the enemy because what does he come to do? To kill, steal, yes, and destroy. That's his end game. So we must live differently. I'm not saying don't be involved, don't vote, don't run for office if God calls you to. We need Christian people in strategic positions. God has used people like that all throughout history. Take a Daniel. Look at the impact he had. One man in two powerful kingdoms God granted him favor because of his faithfulness because he was faithful in the little things when the big test came he was able to stand firm we too must follow his example we must choose to be faithful daily and every choice we make knowing that every choice we make has a ripple effect And it doesn't just impact us, it impacts our descendants. It impacts those within our influence. And we must live different. We must choose. And you get to choose. That was the beauty of the message that I shared with the women in prison. You may have been born into the lineage of Cain, but the moment you choose Jesus Christ, you are transferred from the lineage of Cain to the lineage of Seth. And you now have a righteous heritage. And you can claim everything that goes with it in Jesus Christ. We want to be those who please the Lord, those who walk with him as Enoch did because he is coming back just as he said. He is coming back and you're either going to be raptured up like Enoch or called out of the grave by name like Lazarus. But you will be with him for all of eternity. What will you do with your here and now? How will you use this life, this time, God has granted us to walk with God like Enoch did? So intimately that you please him and you advance his kingdom. That is what he died and enabled us to do.